0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host... Farnoosh Tarabi, and you're joining us now on the weekend edition, Ask Farnoosh. It's a chance for us to connect all week. You've been sending me in your great questions about money and career. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your interest and your uh, enthusiasm to uh, send in your questions and to join us here on a Sunday when you could be doing a lot of other things. Um, I just wrote a piece for dailyworth.com. I don't think it's gone up yet, but it's chronicling the habits of very successful women on the weekends. And I'm happy to say that they're all pretty normal habits. (laughs) Sleeping in, cooking, spending time with their families, listening to podcasts, hopefully this one. Uh, Okay, let's get right to it. I want to answer as many questions as I can today. And as I said yesterday, I'm in San Francisco today visiting my family, so I want to get back to them as well as you probably want to get back to your life. But in the meantime, let's answer some really good financial questions. Starting with BK, stands for Brian. Brian asks, uh, you asked for a wild question. I did, Brian. I tweeted, send me your wireless financial questions. So here's yours. Brian asks, where do I legally put money to keep it away from colleges and to look good for financial aid? I've been working hard to save money for three children, and I don't want it all gone after the first year of the first child going off to college. Does putting it in real estate help? Either primary home, vacation home, or investment? Should we spend it on vacations and luxury items and hope for the best on financial aid? Very, very good question, Brian. So I did look this up for you. I checked out a couple of resources online that you should also check yourself. And anybody else on the podcast who's curious about college costs and how to save and financial aid, there are two phenomenal websites, very, very comprehensive. The first is edvisors.com, E-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. The second is finaid.org. Now, according to advisors, there are a number of non-reportable assets on the free application for federal student aid, that's the FAFSA, uh, and they include the following, and by the way, the FAFSA is very important to fill out as soon as possible. FAFSA is the largest source of financial aid uh, that is awarded to students and granted to students and loaned to students every single year, and it's a little hairy, a little daunting, I I won't lie, uh, but if you fill it out, and if you fill it out soon, as soon as possible, you are more likely to qualify for aid and a, and a good bit of it. The fact of the matter is many people fail to fill out the FAFSA because they think it's too hard or too time-consuming. And as a result, there was a survey done by NerdWallet where I contribute, and they found that uh, as a result of uh, basically high school seniors not filling out FAFSA, they left billions of dollars worth of grant money on on the table. Grant money. This is this isn't These aren't loans. This is free money that was not claimed simply because people didn't fill out the form. So fill out the form. And as I said, there are some non-reportable assets, meaning things that you don't have to report on this application. Uh, so this might be worth writing down. The first is the net worth of the family's principal place of residence like your family home. So if you have a mortgage, paying towards the mortgage, putting a little bit of extra money towards that equity uh, could be helpful because it will not count towards your assets when you fill out FAFSA. The net worth of a family farm. Not sure how many of you on the podcast live on farms, but this, again, a similar situation with a primary residence. If you have a farm and the farm is the family's principal place of of residence, Of residents and the student and or the parents materially participate in the farming operation then that does not have to be reported also any small business that you own and is controlled by the family and there are less than a hundred full-time equivalent employees uh, that also is considered an asset that doesn't have to go reported also life insurance policies, including cash value and whole life insurance policies, qualified retirement plans like 401Ks, 403B plans. So money in those types of accounts will not be counted as uh, quote unquote assets, reportable assets. And then finally, personal possessions like clothing, furniture, books, cars, boats, you mentioned going on a vacation, you mentioned maybe you know buying material things. Those two are things that you can buy with your money to therefore show that you have less of it when you go to apply for financial aid. Now, I would also say that you mentioned you have three kids. If those three children, at some point in time, are all enrolled in college, that qualifies you for more aid, potentially. So keep that in mind. I'm not sure of the age differences with your kids, but if you have two going off to college around the same time, or one, and then a couple of years later, the other one heads off, and at some point you've got more than one kid in college, you should reapply and refilling out that fafsa every year to position yourself in a way that might qualify you for more financial aid. And then I went over to finaid.org, another fantastic resource, and they and they have some information about some methods of reducing your income so that you can position yourself in a way that makes you have a more compelling case for financial aid and one is taking an unpaid leave of absence. So in any way that you can show to the FAFSA powers that be that you have uh, lower income than you did the year before, or that you have some kind of financial setback. And and to prove that, you have to either show that you took an unpaid leave of absence, that your wages were cut potentially, that you're incurring a capital loss, say, by selling off bad investments. Another way to uh, reduce your income is to postpone any bonuses until after the base year. Um, If you own your own family business, you can also reduce the salaries of family members during the base year. This isn't my recommendation. This is what uh, FinAid is literally telling people do in order to uh, position themselves in a way that makes them more likely to get financial aid and then also making a larger contribution to your retirement fund is another way to reduce your income hopefully get more college aid but also keep in mind that this conception this idea that you're not going to qualify for aid because you do well because you make you know higher than average income that you don't have debt that you do make enough to you know, keep the wheels turning, um, don't let that deter you from filling out the free application for federal student aid. Absolutely do that. Uh, college is expensive these days, and I think that loan officers know this, scholarship and grant committees know this, and they know that even if you are a six-figure household that and you have three kids, it's very, very tough for you to pay for college in full. That said too, uh, don't just rely on the FAFSA to secure aid. I think that you wanna look outside of FAFSA to look at colleges that are one, affordable, two, that your child is applying to as many scholarships as possible, as many grants as possible outside of the FAFSA system. You know, a lot of times your employer or your spouse's employer might have some kind of scholarship for children of employees going off to college. There might be some merit-based scholarships that your children could qualify for. There's a scholarship for every kid. You have to really just cast a wide net. And I've interviewed several people now, several young adults who've gone through college pretty much on scholarship and they're not necessarily these geniuses but they knew how to apply they applied for it's a numbers game they applied for dozens and dozens of scholarships and here's the thing after you apply for three or four scholarships you can pretty much copy paste your way to the next 10. You know, the, uh, the questions are pretty redundant. Um, so once you work hard on a few, you've pretty much set the stage to apply for a dozen more. And the more you apply for, the more likely you will qualify for some sort of free money. And that's the best kind of aid, right? So good question. Those two resources, advisors.com, finaid.org. I will be putting those on the website, somoneypodcast.com. All right, let's move on. Steve writes, any recommendations for things to know or to ask before hiring a a tax accountant or tax prep service? Good, timely question. Of course, everyone here, everyone is in the midst of tax filing season. The deadline is, of course, April 15th. So here's what I think. I think working with a tax preparer or an accountant could be a smart investment, and it's relatively affordable. Um, There was a survey out Uh, by the National Society of Accountants, which found that hiring a tax preparer costs roughly 250 bucks to complete an itemized Form 1040, And that includes a state tax return, and this is the average price, $246 to be exact. The way I see it is if you can get a professional to realize just one deduction or credit that you would have otherwise overlooked, uh, that itself could help pay for the fee. Of course, you'll need to do your due diligence before hiring a tax preparer to make sure that you get your money's worth, right? So I would say begin by asking around friends, colleagues, family members that you trust for their recommendations. And if you're a freelancer or a small business owner, it's really important that you work with accountants and tax preparers that are familiar with the industry that you're in. So they know the right kind of questions to ask. They know what kinds of deductions to be keeping an eye out to bring to your attention so that they can maximize your return. Uh, So start with kind of asking your inner circle, and once you are on the phone or in person with a potential CPA that you want to hire, some questions to ask. One, are you certified? Are you a certified public accountant or a tax preparer? Now, both a CPA and a tax preparer can handle your paperwork, but a certified public accountant may be more well-versed in tax code and can help you... uh, and can represent you in the event of an audit so that's something to keep in mind it might be worth paying a little bit more to work with an actual cpa Um, if they're not a cpa you want to ask about how much tax related continuing education they've attended each year you know CPAs just keep in mind are required to go through 40 hours every year you also want to find out what your tax preparers uh, tax ID number is and while there are no certifications required to prepare taxes there's still going to be a requirement that anyone preparing a return has a PTIN which is a prepare tax identification number and have them provide it when filing a return anyone that doesn't have that You gotta walk away. It's really important. A few other questions to ask your tax preparer. One, do you practice all year? This is important because if something happens with your tax return after April, you wanna make sure that this person is accessible and that you can follow up with them. Or if you have to file an extension that this person can help you out. And then finally ask point blank, what are your fees? How much do you cost? Now I just said that the average cost is about $250, but that's just the average depending on where you live, if you're in an expensive city it might be more depending on the extensiveness of your taxes it could be more the cost to prepare your taxes really depends on the complexity of your paperwork but it's reasonable to discuss you know the rough estimates the ballpark figures ahead of time and just so that you get a kind of a worst case scenario so there won't be any surprises moving on michelle asks how about paying for daycare for new? it's a huge immediate expense it's tough to carve this out of my budget I hear you, Michelle. Child care is probably one of my biggest expenses, hands down. Um, I have full-time child care. It's, uh, it's a necessity for me to continue working, and so it's a non-negotiable. Um, but I, I understand that you know this is a pain point for a lot of people, whether you're sending your child to daycare, you have a full-time home care person, you have a babysitter, Childcare is definitely one of the biggest expenses parents can incur. Um, It can be more than your monthly mortgage. And according to babycenter.com, which is a uh, great site for parents-to-be and parents, the average cost of childcare in this country is upwards of $11,000. Yeah. And so that is uh, a lot of money every single month. It's more than $900 a month. And then, of course, depending on where you live, like if you live in an expensive city, You might want to add a few more hundred dollars to that some strategies for parents out there who want to minimize costs and and for you too michelle i would say one is uh, don't forget to maximize your tax benefits speaking of taxes just earlier you know as a parent you can take advantage of many tax benefits um there's two that come to mind readily one is the child and dependent care tax credit Uh, this allows you to claim up to i believe it's three thousand dollars worth of child care related expenses for one child or up to 6000 for two or more kids um, under the age of 13. And then your employer might also have a Dependent Care Flex Spending Account. And this lets you put aside pre-tax dollars exclusively for child care expenses. So there's, you know, the HSA and the FSA. This is a kind of a, a savings account for your kid and allows you to use pre-tax dollars. One of the things that a friend of mine does in Washington, D.C., that, that's been very economical for them is to have a nanny share another friend of mine in Chicago does this too both very expensive cities and so this has been kind of a nice um, trade-off is they have one nanny for them for their child and another child a neighboring child now many neighboring parents are reaping the savings of splitting the cost of one caretaker for two to three kids because home daycare is probably the most expensive option and if you're really really interested in that path Uh, one way to alleviate the cost is to have one person take care of two kids and just thinking about the number of kids in our building you know my son was born in June of 2014 and I believe that month there were probably three or four other kids born in June so I'm sure that if I really wanted to I could find a nanny share the other thing you want to consider doing is if you're going to go the daycare route is to negotiate did you know you could Yes, you can, you're not gonna always get what you want, but it's definitely worth talking about how you can save. And if you love this daycare and you wanna be able to stay and continue and you might have another kid on the way there, talk about uh, a sibling discount. You know, if if you have more than one kid going, maybe there's a way for you to cut a better deal. You might wanna also talk about provisions Maybe there are some financial provisions also for families that have a lower income. So definitely ask about that. Ask the administrators there about how you can save. And finally, speak with your employer. You know, for a couple of reasons, you may want to discuss your rising childcare costs with your boss. Um, You might learn that your company has, one, childcare services uh, through their company benefits. There might also be a center on site or a deal with a local provider to get discounted uh, childcare. Also, very worth it to discuss your work schedule. So if you can somehow strike a way to work from home a couple days a week, that might alleviate your need for full-time childcare. Not to say that you're going to be able to work and watch your kid at the same time. Maybe there's a way to have more flexibility with how you're spending on childcare. If you're home, you know, you might be able to sign off at three o'clock and then you can relieve your uh, babysitter at that time and not have to pay those extra costs. And then last but not least, we have a question from Mark. Mark. asks is it wise to get disability insurance if so what kind and how much so I think I, I have disability insurance full disclosure so I am um, I'm a big believer in disability insurance especially if you're self-employed and your income already is um, inconsistent and not something that you can always count on so having disability insurance can be a real oh, well, at the very least, it can help you sleep better at night. You know, knowing that this cushion is there, this kind of insurance is there in the event that you ha- get injured or have some kind of disability, whether it's mental or physical, that prevents you from doing your job and any, any job, really. So disability coverage, um, what it is, is it comes to the rescue if you're unable to work due to an injury or illness. And it provides you with a portion of your income to help cover the bills while you recover. And I think it's smart for all workers to have something of this nature. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, two-thirds of private sector workers have no disability insurance plans. And according to the Social Security Administration, one in four of today's 20-year-olds will experience a disability prior to turning age 67. So if you think you're invincible... I hope you are but if you think that you're just definitely not going to get injured or have any kind of uh, setback that prevents you from working you know um, that's, a, that's a risk you got to be able to you want to have your bases covered and disability insurance can definitely, uh, can definitely go a long way towards that goal. And um, while many employees can access disability coverage through like a group plan at work Individual policies are also available and they can run anywhere from 1% to 3% of your income. And just to put things in perspective, um, Mark, if you're a guy and you'll say you're earning six figures, $100,000, you might pay one to $3,000 a year for an individual disability policy. And the typical amount of disability coverage, it's not going to replace your income 100%, but it will do anywhere from 60 to 80% of your annual income, which is better than nothing, right? And so, yeah, I'm a big fan of disability insurance. If you are concerned about your well-being in the future, and you should be because we're not invincible, we're not immortal, you know, we will potentially have a period of six months or up to a year even where we are not going to be able to work. And won't we be happy to know that we have disability insurance? It's not that expensive when you consider that it's a, if it's like $1,000 a year, we spend a lot of thousands of dollars on things that are far more frivolous that I'm sure you could find room for in your budget to replace and put in disability insurance. So it's, I think, part of good financial planning, just like life insurance, just like health insurance, disability insurance should be up there. Okay, thanks so much for all your questions this weekend. I've had such a blast answering them, and thank you for... Uh, listening to the show all week it's been a phenomenal week for downloads and reviews and i'm just really excited to see that the show continues to gain momentum and remember to ask me a question just hop onto somoneypodcast.com click on ask farnoosh and ask away i'm definitely going to try to answer the question that weekend if not the following weekend so that's a wrap hope you guys have a great rest of your sunday make sure you will get some r&r before the weekday starts again i'll be back here tomorrow in the meantime i I hope your day is so money.